Ladies and gentlemen, this is According to Callus. This is episode 180, and I think I'm going to put this up on a Saturday, so it's going to be a bonus episode 180. <clears throat> Trying to decide if I'm going to go with what makes a candidate or what qualifies a candidate, but I think they both ask the same question. And in this episode, we're going to try and answer that question. So... Without further ado, here we go. All right. The simplest and easiest way to do this is to start from the beginning. If you're running for a federal office, and I would imagine most state offices, there is a constitutional requirement that must be made or met, I should say, right? So, you know, the president has a specific requirement. Of course, Unfortunately, at this point in time, we ignore those requirements. I mean, just look at the uh, two out of the last three presidents failed to meet some of those requirements. Um, But here we are, water under the bridge, and apparently we're never going to fix it. So there's constitutional requirements. There's constitutional requirements to go to Congress, to go to the Senate. Um, There are... I believe state constitutional requirements for several of the elected uh, levels of office. And barring that, there are laws, whether they're federal or state laws, that coincide or clarify constitutional requirements. Now, so long as they don't conflict with the Constitution, all is well. So let's. Let's look at this for just a second, because we always get the question, do you believe this candidate is qualified to run for this office? And you're putting their opponent in the awkward position of saying, well, yeah, they're qualified or no, they're not qualified. But really what they're saying is, is I don't believe they're the best candidate or I don't believe they should be a candidate as opposed to they're not qualified. Because if we're looking purely at the constitutional requirements, I would imagine a great deal of people could run for president, could run for the Senate, could run for Congress, could run for governor, could run for state rep or state Senate, right? The attorney general in Texas. Those are all constitutional or lawful standards that need to be met. Now, when you get into some more challenging aspects of the law, so let's just say that the Constitution's pretty clear and it's a pretty low bar, right? A base requirement in order to run for an office. Then you get into the legal requirements. So some of the legal requirements have to do with residency. They have to do with party affiliation. They have to do with whether or not you can even get on the ballot, Okay, so let's address some of those. Um, In case some of you are not aware, we redistricted this last year. So in the course of redistricting, a lot of us got shifted into districts we were not previously in. So if you were going to plan on running for office and you ended up in, oh, I don't know, a district where you have a great representative or you have a terrible representative and you had zero interest in running or you had high interest in running 
and you were put in the wrong district in which would be determined by what your motives were, right? You had zero interest in running, but now you end up in a district with a terrible representative or you had a high interest in running and now you end up in a district that actually has a good representative. Well, what are what are your options? Well, you can move. You can relocate, but realistically, are you going to be able to do that in 60 days or 30 days? Not always. I mean, now you could go down to Austin. You could lobby and say, hey, I'm thinking about running. Please don't put me in this other district. But, I mean, who thinks about that? I mean, unless somebody is that ambitious that they're looking to run for office for multiple years and they're just counting on the idea of a redistricting so that they can not have to face an incumbent. Hey, I get it. I mean, I I appreciate that. I looked at that myself. So, full disclosure, that is a very valid way to get on a ballot without having to face an incumbent. But what if you expect to be redistricted one way and you end up redistricted another? What if you wanted to run, but you were then put in a district that you don't want to run against the person that's there. You wanted to run in the other district. And, well, you know, because we have these rules that say you have to be in your district for X amount of time before the primary or before you, we can even sign up to run in the primary. That makes it kind of challenging. Now, I understand completely. You don't necessarily want somebody from moving from one part of the state to another part of the state to under the anticipation that there's going to be an open seat or a newly created seat. We don't necessarily want somebody from moving from Waco or Midland to Collin County to run for a seat. But if somebody literally moves two miles down the road so that they're qualified to run in that district, might we not have a little more grace? Might we not have a, okay, well, yeah, we have this rule here, but realistically, come on. I mean, the guy lived across the border. That's the kind of things that we need to be prepared for. Those are the things that we should have thought out and have mechanisms in place that after redistricting, you're given X amount of time or a grace period greater than the original time frame. And it makes us look bad. It looks as childish, actually, when you go and challenge somebody that has a legitimate um, residency thing to where they were cut out of where they might want to run or they didn't quite make the cut in their new district or something like that and they're in the same town but they just are moving over a couple of miles i mean come on there's rules and then there's rules we've talked about this before right the rules for thee and the rules for we this is a problem that's not to say there shouldn't be rules that's not to say there shouldn't be a groundwork in place and basic requirements to be met but when they're implemented in such a way to the detriment of other people, that's a problem. I'm thinking maybe we ought to look at waiving the residency requirements on the term that immediately follows redistricting. That could get interesting. And then just say, after you win the office, you must move into the district within one year. I mean, what would be the difference? We already have probably half of all the congressmen that quote unquote represent an area, whether it's in Texas or anywhere else in the country, and they actually live in Virginia or Maryland. 
and they come home to visit their home state, but they don't really live there. They're not really involved with what's going on there. And again, it's not entirely their fault. I mean, if Congress is in session for nine months out of the year and they're having to go back and forth and they have family things where they want a little bit more stability. I mean, I understand that there's a need to do that for your family, but are you really doing the best job for your constituents? Are you really properly representing the area if you're not there? I think these are fair and valid questions. I think they deserve to be looked at. I don't know if it's an immediately a disqualification in running or holding that office, but it's something that needs to be weighed. It's something that needs to be considered. Does this person really represent us if they only visit us from time to time? I mean, perhaps you can say, uh, and I'm just going to use this as an example because the guy's dead. Sam Johnson, who was more or less born and raised in the area, went to D.C. and represented us. And I would imagine, perhaps, after he had done that for 10 or 20 years, after having a lifetime in the area, he decided, you know what, this is too difficult for me. I can't do this, and I'm going to just stay here and have my intermediaries go by. I can understand how that might happen. But I'm fairly certain that that's at the end of a long period of time where he's there 20 years, which that brings up a whole nother ballgame, right? The term limits question, you know, should somebody be qualified to hold office after 12 years or maybe they ought to step down and let some fresh blood in there? Another fair question. I don't know that I have the answer to that. I'm really kind of uncomfortable with putting a time limit on the amount of uh, service somebody can provide. But when we look at what goes on, particularly in Congress, I'm really not sure that that's worked to our benefit. And maybe to a lesser extent in the Texas State House or Texas State Senate. But setting that aside, the implications of, you know, being there forever, being there for 10, 12 years, the voters ultimately get to decide. The voters ultimately have the veto on whether or not you keep the job. But herein lies the problem. When you're an incumbent, it's near impossible to be defeated unless you're absolutely horrible or the demographics change dramatically enough in your district that you can no longer win. But then that's where redistricting comes in. They recreate the district to better reflect what your outcome or your preferred outcome is. So when you create those districts, you make it even better for you personally to stay in that role and potentially your um, successors in the future. But are you really representing the people? I don't know. I think that's a fair question. I mean, I'm not upset with what they call gerrymandering. I'm not upset with improving the districts to make seats stronger. But what I am dismayed by is the way that they do that when then cavalierly dismiss somebody that says, well, wait a minute, I wanted to run, but now I ended up in a district that I really can't run. Or worse yet, I'm planning on running, but because I didn't tell the right person or I didn't ask for permission, they threw me in a district that I got to run against a guy that's going to raise $3 million. And well, that's that's not a good recipe to have a fruitful campaign. I mean, 
These are things that nobody seems to talk about. They're not willing to look at. So again, this is where law comes in and determines whether or not somebody's qualified to be a candidate. And primarily the residency rules are used to hmm, disadvantage challengers. I think that'd be a fair way to say that. Not always, not everything. Again, we're talking gross generalizations. So, you know, before you write the angry email or shoot me a nasty text or whatever, just keep in mind, these are just observations. Not always true. Not looking to point a specific finger at any one individual. It's just something that we see and hear about every 10 years about the latest thing that's occurred. All right. Now the last issue. We've covered the constitutional requirements. That's pretty straightforward and simple. We've talked about the law and the restrictions or requirements, if you prefer, for running. Now we're going to get into the fuzzy area. We're just going to call it qualifications based upon activities or involvement. So most of the people that listen to my podcast are at least nominally interested in political things, nominally involved. But we all have lots of friends and family that really don't care. In fact, they don't want to know. And whether it's um, from disgust or just ambivalence, they have zero interest in what's going on until such point that it affects their paycheck or affects their kitchen. And and I understand that. I, I feel sympathetic to that plight, right? I, I would love nothing more at times than to just be able to check out and live my own life and not worry about it. But as I have said many, many times, just because you doesn't you do not care about government doesn't mean that government doesn't care about you. Just because you don't see a value to it doesn't mean they don't see a value in you. So the problem is these people get spun up. They want to get involved. And then they look at, well, what's the next available thing I could potentially run for? What's the next thing I could be potentially involved with? Now they're going to go run against well, depending on where they're at, either an incumbent, long-term or short-term, or the party's anointed, or the municipal city's anointed, or the school district's anointed candidate. And they hit you with questions like, have you ever voted for the other team? Okay, well, that's a valid question. Whether you're an R or a D, you want to know, is that guy on my team or not? But there are a lot of people that just don't pay attention to that. And maybe they missed an election or maybe they voted because they really liked that person or they really hated the other person and they went and voted for the other team or against the, their team or however you want to look at it. But if they're not really paying attention or they're not really involved because they want to live their own life and not be bothered, I mean, is that not to be expected? Could they make not make an argument that, you know, I was fine until you guys kept messing with me that I decided to do something about it. So the flip side of that is you ask somebody, well, have you voted in the Republican primary every time in the last eight years? Well, honestly, there's a lot of times I don't even remember what I was doing seven years ago. 
Now, I could tell you, yeah, sure, I voted in the primary. And you know what? If I were to go pull my record up, I'm fairly certain that you're going to see I voted in the primary. But it's entirely possible I might have missed the primary, especially if you go back, so I don't know, 12 years, 15, 20 years. Could I have missed the primary because I was traveling or because something was going on in my life that distracted me, that I set politics to the back burner for one time? Yeah, I mean, it's entirely possible, especially for people that are not obsessed or at least very interested in the politics of the world around them. Whether it's at the state level or the national level, they just like to worry about what's going on in their own backyard. Now, that's fair to call that into question, but is that a disqualifying feature? I don't know. I think it's a fair question, but I don't think it should be wielded like a sword that, oh, you are a failure and you're not qualified to represent us because you failed to vote in the primary in 2018. Really? Well, what if I just liked everybody that was running and there were no challenges I was supporting and I just assumed that, hey, there's no races that matter in 2018 on the uh, party that I belong to, so I I can skip this one. I've got other things going on in my life. I'm not going to worry about it. I mean, do you hate on a guy for that? No. Do you act like that's an immediate disqualification? Well, maybe you do if you're, you know, feeling threatened by him. I mean, it's a different if the person never voted in a primary and then, oh, well, yeah, now it's 2022 and you decide to go show up and vote in 2020. And now you think you're ready to be, I don't know, the next congressman or the next house rep or, oh, governor. I mean, I think it's a fair thing to say, well, where you been for the last 20 years, 10 years, five years? You voted in exactly one primary. Yeah, that's a fair question then. But if you got a general voting record of over the last 10 or 12 years for voting for your team and you miss one, really? That's that's going to be a disqualifying factor? Hmm. I don't think so. I I think it deserves to be mentioned. I think it, if there's a valid reason or excuse, yeah, okay. You just you weigh it like you would anything else. But now let's look at the other thing. What if you went and, I don't know, participated in a stunt? Let's say back in 2008, there was something called Operation Chaos, right? I'm sure there's been similar things that have occurred over the years where we just really hate one candidate on one party or the other party, and we're going to go vote for their opponent. We're going to go, you know, mess with the outcome because, you know, we have an open primary system in Texas for whatever reason. So both sides can go mess in the other side's primary. I mean, should we be upset if somebody wanted to go take out a really bad Democrat with a less bad Democrat? Especially if that was the only choice you had. You have really bad Democrat, less bad Democrat, and you're a Republican. You go vote for the less bad Democrat. I mean, is that person automatically disqualified now from doing anything in the Republican Party? Or vice versa, for that matter? I don't think so. I mean, if they have a valid explanation, they need to be able to have a valid explanation, I would think. But if you're not given an opportunity to give said valid explanation, then we step up to the other idea. So there's this group that were called uh, Republicans for Biden. Now, 
I would imagine all of them now must be singing Maya Culpa and hiding their heads in shame because, you know, that we had to get rid of Mr. Mean Tweets so that we could get what Mr. Diaper Pants in. But the reality is there are plenty of, I would call them, decent Republicans that may have gotten led astray because they were so upset by the cult of personality that was with our last president that they felt like they had a moral obligation to make him go away. Short-sighted, foolish, one might say, but do we immediately cast them out? I I don't know. I mean, we have plenty of moderates or what I would call milk toast people that have an R after their name. They're on our team. They are the weakest link, but we really can't afford to not have them on our team. We need them. We have to pull them across the finish line often, but we still need them. And uh, mistreat them and um, make them feel like the redheaded stepchild, if you understand that reference, is not productive. Now, we have to encourage them. We have to push them. We have to maybe educate them. But we also have to have compassion and understanding. Maybe some of these people have legitimate concerns or different upbringing or maybe they just are in a different space but we can't treat them all like garbage and expect them to want to stick around and help us you know and this is kind of where the whole idea of somebody's faith gets involved i mean how can you have grace and show loving kindness if you're dismissing them because you didn't like their position on this or that the difference is, is when you're dealing with a moderate and they're an honest moderate, and even though they're milk toast, they're honest about it. I mean, okay, you know what you're dealing with. You're going to agree on the 65, 70, 75% of the things and work together on those things. The real challenge is the person that says they're on your team swears up and down they're this great Christian conservative lion heart, and then they let you down. Not once, not twice, maybe three times. They fail on a large scale on very important things. And then they turn around and sell you on the idea that they're the great conservative Christian champion. And we now know that they're not. Perhaps these guys are the bigger threat. These guys are the bigger problem. We ought to deal with them. But therein lies the rub. How do you run somebody against them? I mean, they now have the office. They have the power of incumbency. They have the money. They have the name recognition and you run somebody against them and they will do their due diligence as they should and find the Achilles heel, find the weak spot. And they're going to exploit it for all that it is because they want to stay in power. They want to keep that seat. They couldn't care less about representing us. It's they want that seat. You would think that there would be some amount of shame left in the individuals that say they're one thing and then really are another. But when I see them time and time again, don't do the thing that we want them to do. And then they come and sell us why we're their best friend and why they, we need them. It makes me think of that. The section of the movie of V for Vendetta, when the guy is screaming about how we need to remind the people why they need us. And he does it through fear and exploitation and causes panic to where that people 
readily give up everything they have left to feel secure, to feel safe. And only this one person can give it to us. If that sounds familiar, then you have been paying attention. So I got to say, this has been an interesting election cycle thus far. We have a redefinition of what makes conservative. We have people that don't even understand what Christian means, apparently, um, at least under the realm of orthodoxy. Um, And in the redefinition of conservative uh, now lumps in a whole bunch of progressives that are, in fact, not conservative. Fortunately, I provide the uh, alternative of calling yourself a constitutionalist or a constitutional conservative if you prefer. But even that will only in time be co-opted. So we'll have to change it yet again, I'm sure. And then there are some of us that are still the Ron Paul acolytes, those that were inspired by him in his heroic stand on so many things. And the people question our motives. They question our credentials. We're the ones that hold the line. We're the ones that defend liberty. We're the ones that face down both parties when they're wrong, which is often. We're the ones that say, no, government doesn't have that authority. And that causes them to panic because they're afraid. They need that security. They need that uh, person in office to protect them. So when you look at activities and when you look at people's involvement and you see that they've had a lifetime of just going to work, paying their bills, taking care of their family and staying out of trouble. And they say, I've had enough. I'm going to get involved. I'm going to run for office. Now, maybe that person, their first seat shouldn't be Congress shouldn't be lieutenant governor shouldn't be, I don't know, attorney general, but school board, city council, state rep. Those are all very appropriate starting points for highly motivated, irritated individuals that were content to just take care of their family. And then when they got to the point where they couldn't deal with it anymore, they just said enough and I'm going to get involved. They should not be held to the same standard that our elected officials need to be held to. Our elected officials sell sell themselves to us that they're the great champions, that they're going to do all these things. And when they fail to deliver on those, those are the ones that have a voting record. Those are the ones that need to be held accountable. Those are the ones that maybe need to be retired, even if it's prematurely. I would much rather take a gamble on an inexperienced quote unquote, or a unseasoned quote unquote, or a, uh, I don't want to say neophyte, but let's say new to political craziness person. I would, I would much rather take a chance on that as long as they're willing to listen, willing to learn, willing to put in the time and partner with some people that can guide or help them. And by people, I mean, non-other elected officials, but solid people that we know. If they're willing to do that, then I will much rather take a chance on them. When somebody talks about how they've been doing things already and how they've been getting stuff done, pay attention to what they've done. 
Pay attention to the things that they've supported. Pay attention to where they've gone and what they've done and who they've supported. And make sure that that's really the person you want representing you. I mean, I know that we have a long track record of promoting people from lesser offices to higher offices. How's that been working out for us? I'm asking you. Roll the dice. Take a chance. Take somebody that doesn't have that long record. Take somebody that doesn't, I don't know, come across like they belong on TV. Take somebody that maybe lost their job. Somebody that's given up something to run. Take a chance on somebody who doesn't sound like a radio announcer. These are our people. I would much rather take a chance on them going there and failing or going there and finding that after two to four years, you know what? This is just not for me. I'm going back home. I'm going to go back, take care of my family or my friends or my business. I would much rather deal with that than put another guy in office that goes there for 10, 20, 30 years as he works his way up the ladder or she shimmies along the, um, posts of appointments and whatever else and then we get nothing because they're not working for us they're not our representatives they're in it for themselves they're not our friends they're not our allies and they're clearly not our representatives and if you're listening to me and you're thinking to yourself well man Kels, you've just described a whole number of people that we have Yeah, I know. I've been a little vague and I haven't called out names and I haven't pointed to specific things, but I've hit on topics that really affect every one of the people that we know. Some are better than others. Some maybe deserve another term. Some maybe are better than their opponent, the person that threw their hat in the ring because they couldn't take it anymore. But I'm asking you to consider... Sometimes it's better the devil you know than the devil you don't. But sometimes the devil just needs to go. And I would encourage you, make that decision on your own. Do your own research. Be sure that you understand what's at stake. Each representative is one of 150. Each state senator is one of 30. Even if we sent the absolute worst person to represent us, They would only go for one term and they really can't screw that much stuff up. It is not the end of the world. Unlike, say, the lieutenant governor's race, if we were to continue to send Lieutenant Dan, we can look forward to not getting many of the things done that we want. Perhaps we are ready for new blood there. Perhaps... I don't know, the guy that I encouraged to run in that race that a number of us in the grassroots level said, hey, you know what? It would be awesome if you would run. Perhaps we need a new Dan. We can retire Lieutenant Dan and get Daniel Miller in there. Now I know, I know, some of you are kind of scared about the whole Texas thing. But again, Look at that guy's credentials. Look at all that he's done in the last 20-some years. And I will put that up against what Lieutenant Dan has done any day of the week. 
take a chance. Set aside your personal fear on Texan. After all, Daniel Miller said, first and foremost, and I agree with this wholeheartedly, let's put it to the people. Take a vote. If they want it, great. If they don't, okay, well, then we got to educate them some more. Or we got to spend some more time on that. But that solves the issue for probably a decade. What's the problem here? What are they afraid of? Don't allow yourself to be manipulated by fear. Don't give in because it's the easy way. Freedom is something that we must preserve. Liberty is important and it's not protected by timid, safe men or women for that matter. You have to take a chance. You have to put in the effort. Do your due diligence. Go out and vote and vote smart and look at their qualifications. Ask yourself, what makes the candidate? Yeah, yeah, I know all about electability. But if everybody thinks that way, then nobody's ever electable. Set aside that one thing and vote your conscience. And we might just be surprised at what happens. With that, friends, this is According to Callus. This was episode 180 for the Saturday special. And I will see you on the other side.